The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm your host, Anthony Curry, and with me hosting today is Amanda Gomez. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for stepping in. Yep, thank you. And later in the program, we hand it over to our colleagues in Hong Kong to fill us in on the company that wants to eat Alibaba's lunch. Before that, though, we turn to the environment. The Amazon rainforest is burning and has sparked a war words between Brazil and the European Union. Hurricane Dorian, whose destructive power was enhanced by global warming, has left devastation in its wake across the Bahamas. Recent reports from the United Nations and others detail the challenges we face in feeding a fast expanding global population. The list goes on. But what if there were a way to combat floods, improve water and soil quality, boost crop yields, and store the ever-increasing levels of carbon that are causing climate change? Anthony, what is this magic fix? Uh, well, let, yes, <laughs> it's not quite magic, so it's not going to solve everything. Um, but it's really a very, well, in, 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 its, in, in theory, it's a very simple thing because it's something that's been around forever, which is trees. Basically, what we're talking about is reforesting the planet. So there are, say, 2 billion hectares of land that uh, has been, uh, used to be forest, has now been degraded over the past 30, 40 years. People have estimated, like World Resources Institute and others, um, and that's roughly the size of Latin America. So you're talking about a huge swathe of land that were it to be uh, reforested properly, sustainably, uh, then we'd be able to do a lot with all these issues you mentioned from flooding to uh, carbon sequestration. And what are companies doing to help out with this? Not a lot. So this is the whole idea of reforestation is is in its infancy, really. So you've got a lot of small companies looking, doing small projects, some of which are uh, making a decent amount of money, actually. And, and the likes of the World Resources Institute have been studying these for a couple of years, working out what they should do. And, and some of them are doing things like you know, using drones to, to replant trees, which means you can do it more quickly and more cheaply, all the way through to, you know, can you use it for medicinal research? Uh, can you come up with some other sort of sustainable products with you know, simple stuff like nuts and and uh, and fruit and stuff that you can harvest? So all ways of, of doing this and making money at the same time. Whereas the big companies, like Shell's done some of this, and maybe we can talk about that later. But the likes of ExxonMobil, for example, um, which is the third largest emitter in the world of greenhouse gases, it's basically resting on its laurels and saying, look, we'll be fine. In fact, just this week, the CEO, Darren Woods, said, let's go out and do more deals because there'll still be a need for oil and gas. Won't there for decades? It takes years for energy transition to work through. So we'll be fine. We'll go and do more deals. And yes, we put 10 billion aside for uh, trying to work out how to uh, cut our carbon emissions. But that's over a 20 year period. So it's pretty de minimis, frankly. So when you say sustainable reforestation, what exactly do you mean? Because I'm thinking reforestation is just logging and creating more paper. Yeah, that's, that's actually how a, a lot of companies that talk about reforestation are doing it. It's basically what this, this it's an awful term, but greenwashing, i.e. it doesn't really cut the mustard when it comes to um, proper sustainable uh, re, uh, reforestation. So logging can have a purpose in sustainable forestry. The problem with logging is you get, well, you've got two big problems. Firstly, the most obvious one is that the whole reason of having more forests is to sequester the carbon. And that goes in part into the land, but all that, is, that the trees are on, but also in part is in the trees. So if you are continually cutting down trees to use for, whether it's anything from paper, like you said, or through to um, simple wood burning, you're not gonna be able to sequester the carbon. So you're gonna keep releasing the carbon, right? Um, secondly, 
um, if you keep regrowing trees, if you keep cutting them down and regrowing them, you're going to be using the water, which is part of the issue you want to solve. You don't want to be uh, continually sucking up lots of water. You want it to be more sustainably done so that the water flows where it should do and is a better quality rather than just being sucked up in the early stages of a tree's life when it needs a lot more water than it will do once fully grown. So then how does this all work? What are the actual benefits? Okay, so we touched on a couple of them, but if, if you think, so you step back and think, okay, what... If we have a lot more forest, what do we have? We have arguably um, a, uh, let's forget about the carbon sequestration for a minute. You first of all have what ought to be better um, water quality, just because you have more filtration. You have water also being held up uh, in areas where it should be. So if you think if, you, if you're in a, in a city like New York or Sao Paulo or elsewhere and you have enough uh, forestry upstream, then it will, it should, because trees need water, should withhold some of the water so that if there were big floods, maybe it will it will help somewhat. Also, you could look at, say, uh, shrubland, grassland, marshes as part of that as well. And you'll see some cities on coastal areas are also using that. And that won't sequester as much carbon. It's the same principle on combating floods. Also, there's a, there's a water quality issue. Um, if you, the more forests you have and the, also the less you use on farming, say, for fertilizer, which is a, a, a pseudo-separate point, means you have better water quality, but also the filtration of being of coming through forests help. And also, as a result of that, you get better uh, uh, soil quality, down, uh, both in the area and downstream, if, if it's done properly. And this means that you can then, of course, increase crop yields. And some studies have shown that actually the, the more you do this, the better crop yields will be, which means that farmers will make more money and will have more food, arguably, to feel, feed a growing, uh, growing population on the planet. That seems great. You're feeding people. That seems amazing for a forest. But what are companies getting out of this? Oh, this is the thing. So what I did, I looked at, I thought, okay, so all these companies, Exxon especially, but I've heard others as well saying, look, we need you know, a coal company last year was talking about how it's not their fault that um, no one's come up with a plan for sequestering the carbon at site, say, of where coal's being burned. So I thought, OK, so if you need to sequester carbon, you need to do this. Who are the big emitters? So I looked at this list of the top 100 emitters. I thought, OK, let's just see what they earn. So I got all the details on revenue, pre-tax profit, dividends they're paying out, everything else. Um, and their returns, their return on capital employed, which is especially the, the metric that um, oil and gas companies like to use, is really low. So Exxon, for example, just about will make 8% return on capital employed this year. 45 other of the top 100 emitters globally will earn less than that this year. This is all according to data we, that was compiled by Refinitiv. Mm -hmm. And if you look at... Uh, anything below 15% return, which is getting decent. A 15% return on capital is decent, mm -hmm. but 84 of the top 100 don't make that. Well, if you look at the studies that have been done by the WRI, like I mentioned, and the Global Investment Investing Impact Network um, and others, they're showing that actually you can make anything up to 28% return on capital, and I think that's probably at the very high end. But on average, or a lot of these uh, of the schemes they're coming up with can make between 8 and 18%. So if you are a big global emitter, especially if you're one that's making not very good returns. On First of all, this is just a great business to be in because you'll make better money. Secondly, um, it's also, uh, you know, I think they're perfect people, to, perfect companies to do this because an oil and gas company, for example, is 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 well used, easily used to doing very long-term planning uh, where you come up with uh, a plan for um, producing oil that may take years or even a decade or longer to come to filter through. That's going to be the same with forests. If you think you've got to start from scratch, these forest trees have got to grow. So it's a long-term project that they're used to. So I think that's why a lot of these people, a lot of these companies ought to be considering this. Also, there, there are the, the social benefits they can talk about. There's the bragging rights they can talk about. There's the ability to do something with the, with the carbon sequestration. So could you use it to sell... Um, 
say, carbon credits to uh, a competitor or sell it to your clients. For example, you know, if you think about electric cars, Tesla is making now a decent amount of money selling carbon credits for not using any carbon, obviously, mm. to competitors like Fiat, who are nowhere near as far advanced. So you could come up with uh, ways of making money that way as well, which may well be on top of that 8 to 18%, depending on you know, which particular project we're looking at. I see. And is it only oil and energy companies or what other industries are are looking into this? Well, frankly, all of them should do. If you think, you know, we, everything we do produces carbon, basically, right? carbon emissions somehow or other, even if it's not a direct company, like a restaurant produces some from burning. So maybe you know, a restaurant chain is going to think about it. But you think about the supply chain they've got all going through, back all the way through the farm, the farmers they use, uh, the shipping they use to get the, the products. They could all think, OK, well, do we want to make sure that there's a way we can do this? But I think, look, I, I took the top 100 meters because they're the ones who most need to show they're changing. They're the ones who most need probably to find ways of um, showing that they, they can offset the carbon they're producing. Um, but yeah, you can go all the way down the chain. So it could be you know, tourism. It could be um, it could be beer companies. In fact, I was at a conference last week on water, where the head of sustainability for Heineken was talking. He said, "Look, part of our water plan over the next ten years is to invest in forests and reforestation because otherwise, um, we're not going to have good enough quality water in certain sites where where we've located where there is either water stress or water quality issues." You know, one of the com- companies that is doing this already is Shell. World Dutch Shell, it announced earlier this year, it's putting about $300 million into reforestation efforts at stopping deforestation and other similar efforts with mm-hmm. a hope to doing things, like I said, like, you know, offsetting um, carbon emissions for their clients. So you can go and spend an extra cent per, I think, ga- gallon or litre, I forget what it was, of gasoline uh, in the Netherlands if you buy it from a, a Shell station. Mm-hmm. And that will offset some of your carbon emissions if you want. So how does this 300 million fit into reforestation if you say there's 2 million hectares of land available? 2 billion. Yeah, it's 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 um it's not a lot at all, right? It's not going to do much. What Shell is doing with this is investing it in some uh, to reforest some areas in the Netherlands for example, a couple of other sites. It's not a lot. And when I spoke to Shell, they said, "Look, this is we looked into this for a couple of years, basically since the Paris Agreement. We realized it's a way that we could make money, but also a way that we could offset carbon for our clients." Um and Basically, 300 million is not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but for the size of the industry at the moment, it's pretty big. What people are thinking, though, is that there is a $300 billion shortfall each year uh, in in, in um, resources to help reforest this 2 billion hectares of land we mentioned earlier on. So 300 million at the moment is nothing. If you think about it, though, if every single at the top 100 emitters, emitters put in the same amount, mm. then you're already looking at you know, a, f- a fair whack of money. That's already, what, $30 billion. So it's only 10% of, mm-hmm. of the annual need, but it's not bad. In fact, if you look at other metrics, you know, it's at $300 billion that's needed is about less than 4% of the total expected revenue this calendar year that the top 100 emitters will make. So if you turned it into a... Uh, core business as opposed to an adjunct to what we already do, you could easily, by offsetting uh, or by saying that we won't do this particular business or that particular business this year, we're going to put the money into forests, you could actually fund it pretty easily. I don't think anyone's going to do that. Um, but you know, there, there are ways of seeing how the top 100 emissions and beyond, like Heineken I mentioned, mm-hmm. could go and do uh, more f- reforestation. But what are the risks that the businesses are taking by investing in this? Well, the first one is, is related to that 300 million being both very small compared to the potential, but also very large compared to what's there at the moment. So um, most of the companies that are doing this are small. 
Um, you're looking at you know, 100 employees. They're, they're, they are growing very quickly, but there are. it's not as if there are uh, enough companies out there that could very quickly find ways to, in, to uh, plant a lot of trees in many parts of this 2 billion hectares of land. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a long process. I think Shell took several years to find the right partners, both NGOs and others, to, to work with them. So it's not easy. But if you don't do anything, nothing happens. So you've got to start somewhere. So that, I think that's the main risk is this just it's just a really small but growing business. The other risk, I suppose, is also um, what if you see this as being a... Uh, a nice investment, but then you don't follow up. And I think that's what a lot of companies do. They'll say, we've made this nice investment. Isn't that great? 300 million. Well, the simple fact is we need a lot more than that over a long period of time. Um, the final risk, and this is the one that I want to be very, very uh, wary of, uh, uh, of uh, this is the one I really want to make sure I, I state, is that um, this is by no means a way to solve the carbon emissions problem. This is a way to make sure that we can sequester more carbon than we are at the moment. So that two billion hectares of land, for example, um, if you reforested that, you could probably sequester about a third of the excess carbon we, we are going to have in the atmosphere. A recent study put it at two thirds, but let's just keep it on the lower level. Let's not overdo it. Um, but for the likes of Exxon and others, this shouldn't be the way of them saying we're not going to do anything with our business. We're just going to offset everything with hit, with with trees. We do need to reduce the carbon emissions we're putting out by reforesting. What we're doing is finding a sustainable way to regi- to take carbon out of the atmosphere and give companies a decent return, which while also giving them time uh, to restructure their business away from uh, fossil fuels. And that's basically what I think this is about, rather than let's do this and forget about the rest of our business. That, I think, would be a really bad thing to do. I see. But then what would a critic respond to that? What if someone were to come in and say, well, we don't need to do this, we're, we're just fine we don't need to reduce the amount. Well, I think I think eventually, and you're already seeing this um, this year, you, you'll find your shareholders will be going against you. So mm. there's already been a move, but there's, a, there's a, a, a group called the Climate Action 100 Plus group of investors, about 360 institutional investors with about 34 trillion of assets under management between them, which have been going after a number of the big emitters and the big miners, so think Glencore, Shell, BP, and others, and saying, you need to do more than you are now, either to explain the, uh, the, the risks to your business from global warming or mm. to address it or to give us the data or even to change. So Shell is changing a fair bit. It's still not investing a great deal uh, in non-fossil fuels at the moment, but it wants to change and become more of an electricity provider than a fossil fuel driller. Um, and I think over time, that's just going to get more, uh, there's be more and more pressure from those kind of people. I think this year they've gone after the low-hanging fruit of these investors, the give us more information, whatever else. I think gradually... <laughs> frankly it should be really quickly they should be going after executive pay tying executive pay to progress on carbon emissions going after the board going after even the ceo and other manager top managers if they do not do enough to prepare the companies uh, for the transition that's coming whether you think it's going to take 30 years or 10 years frank simple fact is if you're if you are a fossil fuel company that is within the lifetime of many of the assets you are still thinking about investing in as an investor if you're not thinking about that as a company they're going to say you are making a big mistake and you're wasting our money anthony thanks for that we'll pass it over to our colleagues in hong kong now Pinduoduo is China's latest e-commerce phenomenon company it started up about 5 years ago it listed a little over a year ago, it's now worth $38 billion and is aiming at taking share from champion Alibaba. Uh, I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here talking with Robin Mock in Hong Kong about how worried Alibaba should be by Pinduoduo. What do you think, Robin? 
Hey, Pete. Pinduoduo is a really interesting company just because there's really nothing like it outside of China. So think of it as a Groupon meets Facebook type of app where, you know, you can band together with your friends and you get big discounts directly from farmers, wholesalers and retailers on the app. So it's become extremely, extremely popular, particularly in smaller Chinese cities outside of Beijing and Shanghai. So this was, you know, a demographic that was largely um, sort of neglected by Alibaba and JD. So Pinodo has sort of really found success there and they are now moving towards, you know, the more affluent cities and really taking on Alibaba and Alibaba should be worried. And I think they are very worried. So what do we see in their latest earnings? I mean, what's the performance been like? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's still a very young company, so they are naturally growing much faster than, say, you know, the incumbents like Alibaba and JD.com. And they are just adding users and new users at a very, very quick pace. But the issue is that, you know, Alibaba should be concerned. But now Pinduoduo, you know, it has established itself as more than just a nuisance. You know, it really needs to sort of think of a way to how to keep their users. Um, Because right now they're doing it by, you know, just very savvy uh, marketing, uh, use of social networks, um, you know, and just, you know, subsidizing a lot of promotions, which is not really a competitive. (laughs) Subsidizing. Yeah. So that's not really giving them a sustainable competitive edge in, you know, a cutthroat sector like e-commerce in China. So there's a wider trend here. A lot of the, the technology companies have said, well, you know, the the top tier cities have been tapped and, you know, the real opportunity is to roll out apps or whatever that are popular with the poorer, smaller cities, uh, rural areas, stuff like that. But I mean, surely nothing stops Alibaba from duplicating this and, and yeah, going so, after and the same And they already show, have right? in some ways. I mean, they have their own group buying functions. You know, they're upgrading a lot of features on their app to be a lot more interactive. So they are really catching up to Pinduoduo. Um, And they could um, still very much just take back their market share. So how big of a dent are the subsidies taking on on Pinduoduo's So the company is still loss-making, and we know that they are still spending quite a bit on, you know, marketing and sales promotions. So that's a bit of an issue for the company in in the future. So there's been some some skepticism expressed about their outlook. But on balance, you sound relatively optimistic. Yeah, I mean, I think the company, they have been experimenting with a lot of new features. So then one of them is this um, game that's directly in the app, which users can go and water their virtual plant every day with water droplets that they can earn, you know, either from buying things, from stealing from friends, from referring purchases to other friends. And then, you know, at the end of um, the game, once they successfully water a plant, they get a free box of fruit. So it's actually quite similar to Farmville and Zynga when Facebook was a very young company that has just started to take off. So it's, it's little things like that, that they're starting to roll out and make the app just a bit more sticky, a bit more interactive and keep people coming back. Well, yeah, and it's interesting that it's something new, right? I mean, there's been Alibaba has been dominant for so long. Taobao, it's it's domestic, has just been this huge semi. Well, I guess not a monopoly, but they've had this huge market share. And um, we see this in other areas like WeChat, which Tencent runs, where like the people are just starting to explore other alternatives. Fundamentally, Robin, and under your impression, is the new generation of Chinese users getting more fickle and less loyal to the brands they used to use? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, every time you have something new and exciting, you know, it will attract new users. 
Um, you know, and Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, you know, they've been around for a very long time. So this definitely is sort of this new era of much more nimbler and innovative companies coming on now. Well, I guess everybody will have to watch their back. Thanks for talking to me, Robin. Great. Thanks, Pete and Robin, for talking us through that. And thanks to Amanda Gomez for guest hosting this week. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes. And please do share your opinion about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.